PFAS are probably arguably the largest environmental contaminant we've ever faced in human history. This is on the scale of uh, CFCs and asbestos. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast, the show where we welcome the total annihilation of toxicity. On today's show, we're continuing our look at how Earthlings are addressing the growing plastics crisis by talking to someone who helped pioneer a solution to put a finite date on PFAS. Those are those forever chemicals that are used in things like flame retardant and waterproofing. There are billions of dollars of lawsuits out there that manufacturers of PFAS are facing, and it's bringing this issue to a forefront. But before we get to how to destroy chemicals expected to last for thousands of generations, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I'm the founder and CEO of Technica Communications and the founder of Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. If you're enjoying the show, we invite you to be a more active member in our community by supporting us any way you can. And you have a couple of options. Number one, obviously, you want to be following the show on your favorite podcast app at, so you get the notifications when a new show drops. You can also get those notifications by following us on social media. So go to LinkedIn, Instagram, X, and YouTube. Find us there and follow the show. And if you've already done that, your next option is to leave a review. You can leave a few stars or even better, some stars and some feedback of what you think. And if you're one of those few people that have reviewed the show, your next step is to become a financial contributor. You can join our Patreon and for the monthly cost of less than what you spent on your last Starbucks latte, like $5 a month, you can help ensure the financial health of this show and all the wonderful people that are working behind the scenes to bring it to you every week. And thank you to Resource Labs for having us on the network. Now, what began as a miracle of modern chemistry is now a global health crisis. With more and more research coming out every day linking plastics to serious health impacts, the social pressure to do something about it is growing. Now, to get an overview of that, have a listen to Episode 2, Season 2, called The Plastic Diet. In that show, we talked about microplastics. But today, we're talking about forever chemicals like PFAS. Hundreds of everyday products are made from these highly toxinated, fluorinated chemicals. PFAS includes a family of some 9,000 chemicals, and they build up in our bodies and never break down in the environment. That's why they're called forever chemicals. And frankly, today, all Americans including newborn babies, and really anybody living in the developed world, has PFAS in their blood. Now, while the Environmental Protection Agency is moving forward on its pledge to regulate PFAS, its current focus is enhancing, quote, pre-market screening of procedures for certain PFAS that the EPA classifies as persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic chemicals. Preventing more PFAS from entering our environment and our bodies obviously is very critical to the health of all living things on this planet. And we still need to clean up all the PFAS from past generations. That's a big old mess. And back then, we didn't have all the research to demonstrate how harmful they could be. But now we do. So now we get to be responsible for that information. 
Fortunately, there is one company out there that has devised a solution to destroy PFAS with extreme prejudice. It's a B corporation called Aquaga, and we caught up with their co-founder and CEO, Nigel Sharp, to learn more. Aquaga is his third venture, and when he's not playing the role of PFAS Demolition Man, he serves on the board of GenSpace, which is a global space entrepreneurship network. And in the past, he's mentored entrepreneurs for the University of Alaska and the University of Colorado. While he studied at King's College of London, we caught up with him at his office in Tacoma, Washington. I'd never heard of PFAS about four years ago, um, but I did care about the environment and I had grown in sort of my entrepreneurial endeavors to really care about some of the big topical issues of our time. And maybe one of our biggest generational issues right now is water and water quality and water scarcity, depending on where you live in the world. And hearing about a colorless, odorless contaminant that was impacting literally almost every person in, in the world and would be for the next thousand generations was uh, terrifying and meaningful enough to sort of get engaged in the broader topic of PFAS, the forever chemical. So PFAS are the per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. It's a class of compounds, probably like six to 8,000 compounds, but they're sold um, as key ingredients that are many, many sort of common trade names that are out there. So these are key ingredients used in products such as Teflon, Gore-Tex, Rain-X, Scotchgard. It's the key sort of chemical ingredient that makes things both waterproof uh, and non-stick, as well as often fire retardant. So um, there is a broad slew of different products that are out there, but everywhere from it's the inside lining and sometimes your microwave popcorn bags to your Starbucks coffee cups, um, all the way over to um, your waterproof clothing and outdoor apparel. That is what PFAS is. It's key, very strong uh, chemical bond that, they, um, again, makes things nonstick, waterproof, or fire retardant. And so that's sort of like back in the early uh, mid-20th century, it was better living through chemicals, right? That was sort of the mantra, but actually not so much now that we've been living with these chemicals for so long. We're starting to recognize <laughs> Our times have changed, right? But if we could just find the miracle. So yeah, I mean, these have been classed as some of some miracle chemicals. I should say chemical companies out there and like primary companies that really sort of helped define and develop some of these company, uh, chemicals were initially like DuPont, 3M, et cetera, really drove some of the innovation around figuring out how to create these fluorocarbons, which they broadly sort of fall under. Um, super, super strong organic chemical bond. They do not exist in the natural world, but they uh, um, can be uh, formulated in labs and then chemical factories. Um, this really tough organic chemistry bond gives uh, these PFAS molecules, these fluorocarbons, a, uh, a really set of magical um, abilities, like being able to resist heat and water, etc. And yet, unfortunately, carrying those fluorines and that uh, fluorocarbon. We've learned historically that not all fluorocarbons have been good for humanity. This happens to be another one. So you probably would remember the uh, chlorofluorocarbons that sort of existed, the CFCs um, and the ozone uh, layer hole that it became a sort of global crisis around. Well, PFAS are pretty arguably the largest environmental contaminant we've ever faced in human history. This is on the scale of uh, CFCs and asbestos sort of combined and the number of people it's impacting and sort of the, the global civilizational challenge that we're facing around this. Um, 
they are found all over the place and they're in a lot of different products we use and therefore we're dealing with a uh, monumental crisis that will impact not only us but the next thousand generations because as we've given them the moniker the forever chemicals they don't break down readily and unfortunately that's part of the challenge is that they, they aren't going away anytime soon right yeah and but your company has figured out how to remove pfas from the water and the soil how do you do this so I want to really um, emphasize that we are not in the business of removal, but I want to talk about about like those sort of two parts of it. We're in the business of destroying these molecules once and for all, so really breaking them down and like ending the PFAS molecule entirely. So breaking those carbon-fluorine bonds that we just talked about. How do we do this? Well, pick an example that hopefully people can grasp onto. So imagine you're out in a uh, airport and there's a fire training area, and they light airplane-looking thing on fire. So they pour a bunch of petrol or uh, benzene or uh, gas, I guess, as, as it's called in America, um, all over that uh, um, air, air, airplane-looking thing. They then like deploy a firefighting foam that gets sprayed all over, and that suppresses the fire. And that ends up sort of getting drained into a nearby pond capture area, maybe the surrounding soil. So what happens then is that you now end up with a sort of toxic pit pond filled with this like you know, sort of PFAS compound. Luckily, PFAS molecules are relatively large for the most part and therefore can be captured by some of our current filtration technologies. Basically, industrial water treatment is no different from really our home water filters in many respects. Industrial water treatment is basically just jumbo-sized Brita filters, pretty much. They use uh, <laughs> activated uh, carbons, ion exchange resins, uh, uh, reverse osmosis membranes, and they basically capture and like separate out these molecules and they create a concentrated filter. Um, where Quagga fits in and what we've been sort of innovating and doing is that, okay, well, it's great that you have folks out there that can concentrate and create like concentrated filter materials, which is really important. But where do you put that stuff? You have to either dump it and take it over to an incinerator or a landfill. We can't just uh, leave ourselves with contaminated pits everywhere. And so we're kind of left with a need for a new destruction solution, another way of disposing of it. And that's really where we've sort of worked as a company to sort of innovate and find a, find a better solution for this. So how are you able to destroy these forever chemicals? So breaking the carbon-fluorine bond is the key to it all. And so this is a again, really tough molecule to break apart. And the way that we do it is we basically build, uh, for no better words, uh, an industrial-sized pressure cooker. Maybe a pressure cooker on steroids is a good way of thinking of it. Um, we use high temperature, high pressure water, and then we add in a um, an alkaline amendment. So we add in like basically what you'd sort of call like lye or caustic soda into it. Um, it takes the pH really high. That creates a really sort of corrosive caustic environment, which is really effective at sort of decoupling those uh, carbon uh, fluorine bonds, uh, breaking them apart. And what's really neat about the chemistry is under those conditions, um, what we find is those fluorines end up combining into fluorides, so a sodium or a calcium fluoride, um, which you'd commonly find in toothpaste and clean water coming out the back end of this machine and no toxic gaseous byproducts out of there. So there's no like air emissions around that. And that makes it like a very clean and safe and friendly way of breaking down one of the world's toughest organic contaminants that we have to deal with. So the, the byproducts of this then are water and you said fluoride? So the byproducts of water and fluoride, and then some people that are into chemistry will ask, well, what happens to the carbons that are in there? Because I mentioned the carbon-fluorine bond. So they get kind of converted into a carbon dioxide, but not as a gas, but actually get captured into a, into a calcium carbonate or a, a sodium carbonate. So like basically 
sort of like bicarbonate of soda, stuff that you, you know, use in baking products. So yeah, it is it is the ingredients of toothpaste and clean water basically coming out the back end of the machine. Super important though for, for, your, for your listeners to understand and I think sort of engage in is that the reason why most contaminants are out there in these sort of communities, often historically one of our big sort of solution methods for you know a tough contaminant like this is dilution. But unfortunately... PFAS exists out in the environment in very, very, very low concentrations. And so when we talk about regulations around PFAS, we're measuring things down in the pop trillion realm. That is like one drop of this stuff in 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. You've only got one drop at the back end of this actually has been sort of captured and have to be dealt with. Um, so when we're sort of talking about it and like putting it back into like normal scenarios or the water that we're processing, we're commonly processing stuff that isn't in the part per trillion, but probably up in the part per billion, part per million range. It's still like a thousand drops to 2000 drops in that like 20 Olympic size swimming pools. We end up with mostly clean water and just heavily fluorinated water. Um, the water that's coming out of the back end of our machine might have like a hundred times the sort of fluoride that you might see in a hundred or a thousand times the fluoride you see in like your home tap water, but it isn't like coming out as a paste by any means. Of course, no, no. There's very little PFAS in the water to begin with, and that's what makes it such an intractable problem to, to get going with, is that you need to concentrate the stuff and then destroy it. Amazing. It's amazing to me that such a small amount of PFAS could wreak so much havoc in our environment. Which, you know, is really where um, the world has been sort of grappling with what do we do about this contaminant? What could be done about this contaminant? So only in the last 10, 15 years, we've had the capabilities, the lab capabilities and the testing standards to even be able to measure down the part per trillion. Historically, very few, if any, contaminants have been regulated at the part per trillion range. I mean, it's just it's just such a low inconceivable amount. But the EPA, um, and here in the US, we've actually been leading some of the global standards around um, uh, PFAS regulation and driving some of those standards uh, simply down to the lowest measurable levels. And that's really where the EPA sort of put this uh, this standard around now. And that's really exciting in some sense that we're like taking a very proactive stance against sort of the health impacts of PFAS. It's a very large lawsuits that were sort of filed um, a number of years ago that drove those studies. And because of that, and those class action suits, we've ended up with some really clear data showing that PFAS down, some PFAS, and again, we're talking about like 8,000, 10,000 different molecules, but some of those PFAS can be highly toxic down those part per trillion, single digit part per trillion range. So it's a fascinating problem because entire water systems having to think about trying to get a, a bucket of contaminant out of an entire lake is uh, is a real tangible um, challenge for the water and the wastewater tech industry to work for. So what are the types of regulations that you would like to see implemented? What's your recommendation? I'm generally in favor of like us regulating against things that we know have harmful human impact. And so PFAS is pretty uh, unique in the sense of the scale and the magnitude of the problem. I think that like more regulation is good, but also understanding, having been to the conferences and engaged in the industry now, that I'm also super cognizant that like putting unbearable amounts of regulation and costs upon like, you know, a lot of water and wastewater providers um is a really, really hard thing for communities to bear because broadly, societally doesn't necessarily value water in a way that we would all talk about water. Like all of us will tell you the water is really important, but all of us will also tell you that we don't spend very much, pay very much for water. We don't consider that one of our big builders in our life, yet it's the most essential resource that we utilize and have almost freely available to most of us. Right. Well, as it should be, because what are we, 80% water, something like that? It is a life requirement. So it makes sense that we keep it extremely affordable for people. 
But at the same time, it can't be contaminated and we have to get these PFAS out of that water. So I want to make sure we're all clear. The various water treatment facilities can remove that, but then they don't know what to do with the PFAS after they've removed it. Is that correct? So yeah, there's a lot happening and it's all happened very recently in just the last few years. Last 10, 15 years, we've sort of been to measure things down, the levels of PFAS sort of exist in these various supplies and recognizing that even down in these very low popotrillion realm, there is measurable health impact and therefore we need to do something about it. We've updated uh, both the health advisories and actually setting some drinking water regulation standards down in the single digit popotrillion range. Um, has been sort of a huge advancement forward in this. And then globally, people are paying huge amounts of attention around this. So what happens uh, in the US, like most other countries, is that federal regulators like the EPA set a drinking water standard or a state regulator like the EPA says drinking water standard. And then the municipalities and the water pro providers have to then meet that standard. And they have a timeline where they have to meet those standards and put the various treatment facilities in place to like hit those standards. And so it's really kind of fascinating because you set the standard, the other guys have to meet the standard. So broadly, yes, the answer is like, yes, but there's a bunch of other factors there, like socioeconomic factors, like can they afford to treat to those standards? How much of a disruption is this going to change their overall like processing and, and change of work? And I mean, I want to be clear, these are big. We're talking about like full facilities, employing like jobs and other people, trucks of water and entire facilities. So these things don't just happen overnight. Cities have to find new bonding. There has to be like government spend. Budgets have to be sort of accounted for. And so to ask people to like put in treatment that might require them to do 10 times as much treatment as they're currently doing, to hit that with their current tooling becomes really, really, really hard to to suddenly bear. This isn't just a slight modification uh, for a lot of these facilities. Simultaneously, there is an opportunity to adopt new technologies, more targeted filtration media that work better for certain PFAS, for example. And so that's where the industry is right now. They're sort of negotiating what standards do we need to hit? When do we need to hit them by? What facilities are we going to have to upgrade? And this is spurring to life, as the Financial Times just reported on, an entire multi-hundred billion dollar a year uh, industry um, just centered around this contaminant, clean up this contaminant. Much like, and again, to kind of use an analogous contaminant, asbestos did. We had asbestos on all of our walls and our buildings, and then suddenly the cleanup of asbestos and the change of construction and the modification of that created a whole uh, multi-billion dollar industry as well. Well, PFAS is doing that, but just very rapidly as it's in our drinking water uh, and wastewater sources and still produced by these industrial producers. So where does your technology fit in? How do you roll it out to these um, to these various places where the, the, the PFAS needs to be destroyed. We are in a position that our solution fits in lots of places, but generally where we can have the biggest impact is at the top of the pipe uh, where the stuff is being produced. Let's pick the clothing industry, for example, who's building like waterproof apparel. Well, those industrial facilities producing that PFAS have it in their wastewater and therefore like trying to tackle the problem right there where they can filter it and dispose of it there so it doesn't leave the site and doesn't leave the industrial facility is a great place to have a huge impact to the problem. And the other end is, of course, where we dump all the waste. Like everything in the end does end up going to like, a lot of landfills. And therefore, landfills have leachate treatment facilities associated with them. So landfills get rained upon, they capture that rainwater, they sometimes have to do some pretreatment, and they send some of that wastewater, that leachate, to wastewater treatment plants and other sort of facilities as well. Top of the pipe, bottom of the pipe, as it was sort of broadly be called. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that there aren't communities that are impacted. So there are Air Force bases and like certain environmental locations where you've got 
community is directly being impacted and exposed. Um, and that exposure, those points can also be really key and meaningful points to like try and dispose of this because a community doesn't want to like treat their problem and then pass a problem onto another community. Thank you for that. I, I love what you're saying about thinking about the next thousand generations. We can barely get our politicians to think about the next three years beyond, you know, let alone a generation or two from now and then of course thousands. So I appreciate you giving us that perspective because that is the perspective we ought to have. Because we're already even paying for it for generations to come. Uh, but how far do we want that line to go down? And when I talk about paying for it, there's two parts of paying for it. Both the cost piece, because like the DOD doesn't get its money from somewhere else. It gets it from us. And so like the people paying for it in that way, in like true dollar um, sense, in dollars and cents, but also the people paying for it through their health, right? The health of the impacted loved ones and their families and the kids and their kids, uh, generation after generation is something to be really mindful and considerate about. And so taking no action on being inactive about it is not an option with this. And so it does take a, a longer term mindset. And yet one thing that I found like through the work that I've done getting involved in this industry and more broadly just in the communities is that water is one of those very few resources that everybody can get pretty aligned around and everybody gets pretty disgusted by the idea of like an odorless, cuddleless contaminant impacting everyone and will be impacting them and then their kids and their families um, and nothing is necessarily being done about it or not, not enough is being done so yeah it's a good call to arms on that on that regard yeah so you talked about some of the epa regulations what's happening in other parts of the world uh in europe or asia uh are they also looking at pfas and, and how to regulate it there's a couple of key things that have happened sort of around the world that I've been at least tracking, and I don't mean to be authoritative here. Like, I still feel like I'm constantly being exposed to more and more um, news around PFAS. But Europe was kind of ahead uh, for a number of years, not unsurprisingly, on sort of getting ahead on sort of sensing and capturing data around sort of PFAS and maybe uh, doing some of those early health studies as well. But what they weren't ready to do was regulate on the treatment and solutions around this. And that's really where America's been leading, has been like helping regulate on treatment solutions, but also product changes. There isn't a single aisle of a grocery store that in the US isn't going to be impacted by this. But we've also seen that in Europe, right? So there's been countries that have um, put out regulations around like nonstick frying pans and like outdoor apparel and clothing. Uh, we're seeing airports across Europe moving towards free firefighting foams um, and like big airports like Heathrow, Chardegourde, et cetera, taking uh, very proactive stances on that. And that is like the proactive product changes and product uses has been something Europe's definitely led more on than, uh, than America has. Um, Australia has been interesting in the sense that their Department of Defense were one of the more proactive ones initially in getting ahead on like the firefighting foam disposal and thinking about like these uh, firefighting foam usages and like adjusting sort of their practices around it. So that was um, one of the big drivers, I think, sort of helped sort of preset before the USDOD got us engaged. Uh, I don't think like Asia's been at the, the front line sort of uh, area of this. And, and so it really comes down to a sort of fascinating problem that when dealing with the water and water more broadly, We've obviously got a lot of people in the world that are barely like able to just get sort of generally safe drinking water available to them. If we look at sub-Saharan African countries, for example, we're just worried about having clean enough water that you know isn't going to give you cholera or, or something else. So water standards are very, very different in the world. And so I would say that broadly speaking, this has been more of a developed world, first world kind of challenge than a um, than a developing world uh, problem or problem set to date. But that doesn't mean to say there is an interest in the in the area, the research. They just don't have the the funds and the resources in the area to do the research and development around it. And that's where 
thankfully, the US does and has been sort of the leading edge on like helping develop the technologies and solutions to to think about this problem. And if you think about it, we all, like you said earlier, we all share the same bucket of water, if you will. And what we call the global north has a responsibility. If it's putting PFAS in our water and our soils, it has a responsibility to remove it and destroy it so it doesn't travel around the world. I want to be clear that this, this, these chemicals have been produced in many, many countries in the world, and they continue to use in products being produced in many countries of the world. Of course, like China being a manufacturing arm, there's lots and lots of products that they're implementing and still utilizing PFAS in packaging, etc. The same for the Europe as well. And so there is a general move towards like trying to reduce the usage of these products. So there's a lot happening and it's causing, again, like quite a lot of disruption. Like a single contaminant hasn't really ever had the scale of impact in so many different countries, so many communities, so suddenly... Um, so we're seeing global change happen around this and with that hundreds of billions of dollars, if not even higher amounts of money, like being exchanged and thought about in like, you know, the relation to this industry is it kind of like rapidly expands both on the cleanup and the remediation, as well as all the other components of like changes of products and, and design. And there's been some really big case studies to look at. There's some really big announcements from companies like REI and like Patagonia, for example, talking about how they're modifying their manufacturing processes and like making commitments towards removing PFAS from all of their apparel and um, equipment within a few years from now. But the part that excites me the most is that I'm helping lead a, a team of very talented uh, engineers and other folks in the team who come with a wide variety of skill sets to tackle like challenges like water quality and do something meaningful for like our generation and uh, for generations ahead. And so this is a generational opportunity, not just PFAS, but water in general. And so therefore there's a call for all innovators and other folks out there to, to get engaged in this because we recognize there is a crisis around water, both scarcity, if you live in a desert, like many Californians and nearby states do, all the way over to folks who are suffering by being polluted by industrial water complexes, et cetera, even though they have an abundance of water. Because uh, I'm based in Tacoma, Washington, just south of Seattle. There's no shortage of water up here, um, but we are very mindful of how important and pristine water is to the overall ecosystem. And uh, yeah, having any detriment to water quality is something that um, I feel like could be nice and noble to try and make some difference to. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned all of these commitments that these companies have made. What are you expecting like 10 years out from now? What do you, how do you expect the world to look related to PFAS? 10 years from now, I believe the world is going to talk about PFAS in the same way that I think the generation before talked about asbestos or maybe CFCs. We're going to be aware of this as a large contaminant and, uh, and a bit of a uh, crisis that the, the world is dealing with. It's going to be maybe less front of mind than it is now for a lot of different organizations. I do think we'll live in a world with more regulation. I feel almost sure of that. Like, you know, we'll have greater regulations and more folks working in public health and uh, water um, to provide us with like cleaner and safer drinking water and also the other things that go along with it, uh, like food and, and other, all the other things that touch into, into water production. Um, so I think we'll live in a, in, a, in a more positive outlook and environment in that front. Um, I also think, like again, from the technology innovation front, the water and the wastewater industry is going to have new technologies, new tools available at their disposal to start thinking about contaminants and waste in a different way. And that's pretty exciting. Um, I think we're going to spur new industries uh, into effect and hopefully draw new entrepreneurs, new innovators into the space and, and it attracts um other individuals otherwise wouldn't easily get plugged in to an industry that has been fairly conservative and not necessarily a, a front leader in, in too much. 
I also think we're still going to be dealing with PFAS. Like, I don't think it, the problem is going to be gone. Um, I think like many other things, there'll be, there'll be another toxin du jour that we have to be uh, mindful of. And uh, this may not be the hot topic anymore. And there'll be the, the next emerging contaminant to be uh, cautious of. But I do become hopeful that the generation ahead, 10 years, maybe a bit further out, are much more mindful of like their longer term impact and their associated longer term custodianship of the earth as they sort of like look forward and like see fit. And those people become in better positions of power um, through the organizations, the communities and the government they get to be participating in. Earthlings. Why does it feel like every generation spends most of its time cleaning up the misguided decisions from previous generations? I guess, is that why the millennials collectively hate the boomers? I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> now, I get it. Like, we may never be fully free of PFAS, but it's comforting to know that people like Nigel are out there destroying what PFAS they can find. Our Faith in Humanity is restored this week by Edgar Mora. He's the former mayor of Corriradabat, Costa Rica. He's credited with transforming the city into a haven for wildlife during his 12 years as mayor. And he did it by granting citizenship to pollinators and native plants and trees. So those pollinators included bees, hummingbirds, bats, and butterflies. He told The Guardian that pollinators are the consultants of the natural world, extreme reproducers, and they don't charge for it. So the city converted every street into a bio corridor and every neighborhood into an ecosystem. And Mora said to do that required having a relationship with them. As a result, the urban planning of Curiradabat now includes spaces that allow all citizens to thrive, not just humans, on this beautiful blue-green space flower that we call home. Hey, listeners. This show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.